0: Let's pray. Lord, all the ends of the earth shall fear you. All the ends of the earth shall come and give you glory. And that was true, Jesus, of you as you hang there on the cross, making that possible. We pray that you would help us to treasure that work of sacrifice because it is what you came to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus came to this earth in order to suffer. That was the main reason why he came. He was born into a world marked by suffering and marked by pain because of the curse of sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it was not just Adam and Eve who fell into sin. It was not just human beings who fell into sin. The whole earth was subjected to futility. We live in a broken, cursed, groaning world. Jesus was a homeless wanderer. He had no place to lay his head. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, His life was constantly in danger. He was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He was abandoned by his closest friends. Friends who said they would never abandon him. He was abandoned. He hung on a cross to die. Naked, exposed, humiliated, and shamed. And he died a brutal and painful death. God's own word says of him, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a baby who was born to die. Christmas is about life, but it's also about death. Why would Jesus come to do that? Who in their right mind would come into a cursed and broken world knowing what's going to happen, coming in order to suffer? And why would we as Christians celebrate his suffering? It's because through his suffering, he saves his people. One of my favorite Christmas carols is What Child Is This? One of the verses there says, Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Jesus' suffering was in our place so that we don't have to bear the curse of sin ourselves. The hope of Christmas is wrapped up in the death of a son. The suffering of Jesus leads to the salvation of the nations. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 22. We've been looking in the Psalms. Some of you have probably wondered, what what sort of Advent series is this that looks at the Psalms? The reason we're doing this is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope. He is the one that when we're reading through the Old Testament, we are waiting for. We're looking forward to his advent as we read the Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is written by David. And it's talking about David's sufferings, and it's pointing forward to the greater David. And as we look at Psalm 22, we're going to be seeing three realities from this psalm. Three realities. The first is that David's suffering anticipates something greater. It looks forward to something greater. That's the first reality. The second reality is Jesus' suffering leads to global worship. Jesus' suffering leads to global worship And the third brings it home to us, and it says that faith in God's promise is what fueled, what drove Jesus' suffering, and faith in God's promise is what enables us to go through suffering as well. So three realities from Psalm 22. Let's look at the first. David's suffering anticipates something greater. Psalm 22 was written by King David, and in this psalm, he is recounting the sufferings that he has experienced, and he is crying out to God because of these sufferings. But Psalm 22 is not merely about David's suffering. We'll see here in a moment, Psalm 22 is prophetic. That means that it is speaking about one who would come in the future, who would suffer as David suffered. And who would be greater than David because his sufferings were greater than David's. In Psalm 22, David experiences all sorts of suffering. His suffering is emotional, he feels forsaken and abandoned by God. His suffering is physical, he is experiencing physical pain and affliction. But through his suffering, David experiences God's grace and sees God in a fresh, new way, so that he can come out on the other side of suffering, praising, and worshiping God. So we're going to walk through this psalm quickly. It's a long psalm. We're going to walk through it quickly, just making some brief comments as we go, and we're going to see how David walked through suffering, and how David's suffering experiences and anticipates something greater. Something that's going to bring hope beyond a mere Middle Eastern king. So in verse 1, we see that David feels forsaken by God. He laments and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David is suffering, and he calls out to God in pain because he feels like God has abandoned him. Like he is isolated and alone, left by himself. Have you had that feeling? Where you're going through pain and you cry out to God, and there's silence. No answer. What David's doing here is he's lamenting. A lament is a godly complaint... That flows from a heart of faith, even as it wrestles with pain. One of my former pastors and mentor, a guy named Mark Vrogup, he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and this is how he defines lament. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. A lament is being raw and real in the presence of God. But a lament is wrestling with how God can be good while I'm experiencing this pain. It's honest, but it's faith-filled as well. In our Bible study on Tuesday night, we talked about the difference between lament and grumbling. We are called not to grumble. When we read through the Old Testament, grumbling is always a sign of unbelief. Israel grumbles against God, and they are judged for it. And yet David is here complaining, lamenting to God, saying, You've left me, God. You've abandoned me. Why have you forsaken me? The difference between grumbling and complaining is what the root of it is. They may look the same on the outside. A grumbling and a lament may look the same, but on the inside, they're running on different operating systems. It's like an Android phone and an iPhone. They may look the same, but one is filled with unbelief, Android users, and one is filled with faith. Grumbling flows from a heart of unbelief. Lament wrestles with God, in faith. Saying, I want to trust you, God. How is this happening? Grumbling moves away from God. Lament moves towards God in submission. David feels abandoned by God, and so he cries out in his pain and says, why? Why have you forsaken me? Did you know that you can do this? Some of us come from church backgrounds where when we experience suffering, and pain and difficulty, we're called to put on good faces and clap and go to God and say, I'm claiming victory over this. It'll be great. It'll be A-OK. Now, God will provide for us. We'll see that. But God doesn't call us to be hypocrites. God doesn't call us to be shallow. God welcomes us to come into his presence and say, God, what's going on? Why? You don't have to pretend around God. It doesn't work anyway. He sees what's going on in your heart. And it is okay for you to wrestle with God and to go before him in pain as long as you're seeking him in faith. And that's the big difference. Our hearts are sinful. We can run away from God as we complain or we can complain to God running towards him. But if we're going to do that, we have to be willing to get the answer from God. We have to be asking him, faith-filled, saying, Lord, I want to know, where are you? I trust you, but I feel forsaken by you. Would you meet me, God? David has not been abandoned by God. Verse 24 shows this. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried. David is going on in the psalm. He's going to say, God was there all along. But he feels from this point of view in verses 1 and 2, he feels like he's been abandoned. And he feels like he's been forsaken. And so he laments before God... But faith doesn't stop with complaint. Faith rests in truth and reality, and it fights to recall truths about God in order to grab hold of God and say, I trust you, Lord. I'm not giving up. And that's where David goes in verse 3. He complains about feeling abandoned. He complains that God doesn't hear his cries. And then he recalls truth. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, God, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. To David, it seems like God is not answering his cries. So David recalls the past grace of God in answering his people's cries and says, that's what I want. I trust you, Lord. I've seen how you provided for them in the past. Would you provide for me like you did in the past? You are holy, God. You do not change, God. I trust you. Would you answer me, God? He holds on despite the way in which He feels, he feels abandoned, and he combats it with truth. This is a good reminder to us that we should not trust our hearts. We should not trust our hearts. Kids, how many of you have seen the movie Frozen? Frozen? Frozen is actually one of the few Disney movies, now there's other problems with Frozen, but Frozen is one of the few Disney movies where it actually shows what happens when you follow your heart. Most Disney movies are all about, oh, follow your heart, it'll go well for you. Don't listen to your parents. But Frozen, what happens when Elsa follows her heart and let it go? The entire kingdom is thrown into a cold winter and people are going to die of starvation. She followed her heart. And it led to the destruction of the kingdom, almost. Kids, don't listen to Disney. The way in which... We do not trust our feelings is by grounding our hope in something that's reliable. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Some of you adults need to hear that too. (laughs) Because you hear Disney and you have the same operating system. If I feel it's right, it's got to be right. I feel like this is what I should do right now. I feel like this person is the one who's right for me. So while I'm married, I feel like I should go to this person. My heart's going after this thing. It's going after this pleasure. It's going after this job. I feel like it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it. The way in which we fight against our hearts, which will deceive us, is by grounding our faith in what will not deceive us. And that is God's word. And that's what David does. He doesn't trust his feelings. He grounds himself in scripture because his heart is not reliable. But God's revealed truth is But faith is not a one-and-done victory. Victory for David doesn't come in verse 5. He turns back to God and laments. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths of me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. David crying out to God. He's saying, God, no one, no one says nice things about me. They scorn me. They mock me. I am feeling shamed. He's humbled. He's no better than a worm. Things are bad, God, David says. And what does David do? He fights with truth yet again. Though others scorn him, God is committed to him. Yet you, God, are he who took me from the womb You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. The circumstances have not changed for David. But he knows that God is committed to him. But he still finds himself surrounded by enemies. And so he still is crying out to God with his weakness He says many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. These aren't literal bulls. These are people. They've opened wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. I have no courage, God. I feel weak. My strength is dried up like pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David is a weak person. He's surrounded by enemies, and he cannot fight them on his own. His bones are out of joint. His strength is dried up. This is not the mighty warrior who killed the giant. This is the fearful exile on the run. And so he keeps praying. He doesn't stop. He runs to God in prayer. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from those from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It is so tempting for Christians to grow cynical in our prayers. We would stop in verse 1 and 2. God doesn't seem to be answering, and so we stop. Or maybe we stop a little bit later on the second time. We fight a little bit with faith, but nothing changes, and so we stop. Salvation for David only comes through waiting. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. He waits upon the Lord and he wrestles with God in prayer. And God hears him. Relief from David only comes through wrestling over and over and over again. And it does come. We see it in verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then verse 22 overflows in prayers and praise to God for his deliverance. And just notice, we're not going to read all of this, but notice how David's response of praise specifically addresses the complaints that he brought to God. David felt forsaken by God, but God has not hidden his face from them. We already saw that in verse 24. David was publicly mocked and scorned by others, but God publicly praises and honors him. That's verse 25. David's strength was dried up, but God gives him food that satisfies. Verse 26. David, in his pain, claims that God lays him in the dust of death. But look at verse 29. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive, will bow down in the presence of God. Death is not the end for David. He will be before God. David's suffering anticipates deliverance. But this isn't the only thing that David's suffering anticipates. David's suffering anticipates the coming of the suffering Savior who will bring about salvation for the world. Psalm 22 moves from the rule and reign of a Middle Eastern king over a particular plot of land... And it moves to God as the global king who rules over all the nations and who receives worship from the nations. Do you see that in verse 27? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. In a little plot of land in the Middle East, David is suffering. And yet, God is on the throne, ruling over the nations, and he will receive worship from people from every tribe and language and nation. Psalm 22 moves from the view from the earth to the view from heaven, it moves from the present to the future. David is looking beyond himself to the worship of God among the nations that is brought about by the greater David. And this is our second reality that we see Jesus' is suffering, the greater David's suffering leads to global worship. The path that David walked is the same path that Jesus would walk years later. Psalm 22 is a pointer to Jesus. In fact, every gospel account of the death of Jesus, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, every single gospel account either cites or references this psalm. This psalm is not only about David. It is about Jesus. Just listen to how the Gospel of Mark describes Jesus' crucifixion. And they crucified him. Hands and feet were pierced. Psalm twenty-two sixteen, 16. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. That's Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18. They divided my garments and cast lots. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. That's verse 7 of 22. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. The death of Jesus is wrapped up in Psalm 22. And what that means is that when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows where it's going. He knows that I have not been forsaken by God. This is not the end. And what he is doing is he is embodying as the suffering servant every suffering that the righteous experience in pointing to the vindication that will come at his resurrection. David's suffering in Psalm 22 is often metaphorical. David's hands and feet probably weren't pierced. His strength was not actually a pot shard. Jesus' suffering was literal. David's suffering was limited. Jesus' suffering was bearing the full weight of curse. No one has suffered like Jesus. No one has taken the wrath of God like Jesus. It will take eternity for billions of people to suffer in hell and bear the pain that Jesus bore on the cross as God's wrath. The sufferings of David are fulfilled in the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus came to this earth. He was born to be the suffering Savior. We celebrate at Christmas the advent of the suffering Savior. He came to this earth to be the one who would die for the sins of his people so that whoever, from whatever tribe or language or nation, could turn to him and receive eternal life. That's why he came. The manger means nothing without the cross. The birth of Jesus means nothing without the death of Jesus. They need each other. The death would mean nothing without the life of Jesus also. But at Christmas when we celebrate the life, we should look forward to Good Friday as we celebrate the death. And the reason why this is the case is because what Jesus' death accomplished In Psalm 22, 27, David looks forward and sees the global worship of God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The New Testament makes this clear, that this happens through Jesus' death and resurrection. We see this in John 12. Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from this earth, he's talking about the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. We see this in Philippians 2, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see this clearly in Revelation 5. They sang a new song. This is the end. People gathered around Jesus saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' death on the cross purchased global worship because he died for people from every tribe and language and nation. His suffering was effectual. It guaranteed that there will be people there who are worshiping from the nations. Jesus' death as the suffering Savior is what allows Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth will worship the Lord. Jesus' death is what allows for that to happen. And we even see this right after Jesus' death in Mark 15. In the moments after Jesus died, Listen to what Mark says. A centurion who stood facing him saw the way in which he breathed his last and he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Immediately after Jesus' death, a Gentile centurion worships. This is the global worship that Jesus purchased. Mark doesn't merely capture the suffering of Psalm 22. He also captures the hope of Psalm 22. Which leads to our final point. Faith in God's promise fueled Jesus' suffering. And it comes to us in that it fuels our suffering as well. Jesus knew that he was going to die on the cross. He was not caught off guard. It was not a surprise to him. This is why he came. And yet, he pressed on. Rather than run away... How many of you would do that? If you knew you were going to have to pass through excruciating pain, pain that is worse than any human being has ever experienced, how many of you would say, yeah, I'll go through that? Knowingly, eyes wide open. Jesus did. And the reason why he did it is because he saw through the pain to the joy that was set before him. He saw the hope of the nations being glad in Christ he saw through the pain and pressed on towards the promise David was the same way David felt forsaken by God we read that he says hard things to God accusations about God you've abandoned me God but he doesn't stay there he goes through the suffering pressing on why because he has seen God work in the past and he trusts that God you will deliver me when I cry to you I trust you, Lord. I can see through this pain to the outcome that you have purchased. Christian, you will suffer as well. The call of Christ is a call to come and die. We are called to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Suffering is the normal experience of the Christian life. This last week, I was listening to a basketball podcast, as I do, I listen to lots of basketball podcasts. I probably shouldn't, but I do. And they were talking about an athlete, basketball player, whose body has broken down due to old age, so that while in his mind I know I'm supposed to go there or I'm supposed to do this, his body isn't able to do the things that it once was able to do. And as I was listening to them describe this player, they said his age. He was 33 years old. I'm 35. This is what I have to look forward to. One long physical decline of suffering. I stand up and my knees hurt. I have no idea what my knees are going to feel like in 30 years, but it terrifies me. Some of you know. We start dying early. Our bodies start breaking down early. Our lives will be marked by normal physical suffering. But there's more suffering. We suffer the hardships of broken relationships. We suffer the difficulty of rejection from our loved ones. We suffer the weight of indwelling sin, resisting against our desires that are sinful. We suffer attacks of Satan. We suffer persecution. Suffering is the normal experience of the Christian life. And the Bible makes it clear. If you do not suffer with Christ, you will not be glorified with Christ. Which means you and I need to know how to suffer well. How do we get through this so that when suffering in our life comes, we don't throw everything away and say, that's it, I'm going to follow another God who won't make me suffer. I'm going to abandon everything. How do we embrace suffering knowing it's coming? How are you going to endure when you hear the news from the doctor that you've had a miscarriage? How are you going to press on when your child abandons the faith? How are you going to endure when you're fired from your job or just experience the daily discouragements that come every day? I mean, there were times this past week alone where I felt so discouraged just by normal life. How are you going to endure? The answer is by doing what David did and what Jesus does. We endure by keeping our eyes on the promised future in seeing through the suffering towards the hope. Jesus came into a cursed world, but he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The pleasures that we experience with Jesus are far, far greater than any pain or any suffering that we would ever experience in this life. The pain is real. It is deep. But compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has for us with Christ, the Apostle Paul, who knew suffering, can say, it is light and momentary. We can, in the midst of the suffering, surrounded by pain and loss, cry out God, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, there is nothing that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever, God. God, you are the one I want. You are the one I need. You are the one who is more satisfying, more delightful, more glorious than anything this world has to offer. I may be abandoned by my friends. I may be barren and childless. I may be single and discontent, and yet, Lord, I have you, which means I have everything. In Christ, I have all that I need because, God, you are for me in Jesus. You can do that and then walk through the pain, crying out and holding on to God. John Patton was a missionary to cannibals in the mid-1800s in Papua New Guinea. How many of you know the story of John Patton? John Patton walked through incredible suffering. He was rejected by people in his home country for going. They thought he was crazy. He lost his wife and his son. They died on the mission field. His life was constantly threatened, and he was under attack. And yet, John Patton pressed on. In fact, one night, he talks about how much pain he had, how much fear he had, as people came at him with muskets and machetes, muskets and old gun, and they were seeking his life, and he had to run and hide up in a tree and wait there by himself alone on an island in a strange culture with people who were seeking to kill him. And what was his experience in the midst of that suffering? He tells us, The hours I spent there... Live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets, the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Alone yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling, his consoling fellowship. John Patton sat in the tree, and he could have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sure in his heart he did, and yet he pressed on in prayer, and he realized, alone, but not alone, And he experienced sweet fellowship with God. Now, how was he able to do that? What was his solution that allowed for him to do it? He tells us. He goes on just a few sentences later, and he says, Had I been a stranger to Jesus and to my prayer, my reason would have verily given way. I would have gone crazy. But my comfort and joy sprang out of these words... I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Lo, I am with you always. Pleading these promises, I followed my guide. Had I have trusted my reason, had I have followed my heart, I would have gone crazy. But I combated those fears and feelings with truth. And I said, my God has said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that means when you are in a tree surrounded by people who are seeking your life, I am with you always in Papua New Guinea and beyond. The promises of God enabled Patton to suffer. And in fact, his faith in God's future grace and the good that God had for him actually allowed for him to say, I'd do it again. I would be willing to spend many a night in a tree to experience God in that way. Having tasted and seen the Lord is good, Patton says, God, you are faithful. Would you be able to say that? If you have tasted the goodness of God that comes to us in Christ, then you can. It takes faith and it takes the power of the Spirit, but you will be able to say, God, you are better. Than anything I can experience in this life. The curse is real this Christmas, and the suffering that results is painful. But God has promised a time when there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, when the nations will come to Christ in faith and to worship. In this Advent, we look back to the way that God kept his promise in Psalm 22. It came to pass. And we look forward to help us trust in God that he will come again. The first coming of Jesus is the guarantee of his second coming. And so take heart, Christian, and push on this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know what it is like to suffer and that through your suffering you bring about the salvation of the nations. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace suffering Because we know of the good that you have for us on the other side. You have not abandoned us. You have not forsaken us. You will be with us. So we pray, God, that you would help us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen.